many people have said this is genocide. Justice Sinclair has said it's genocide. The former Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of Canada has called it genocide. So how do we investigate that? What are the patterns that we see from residential school to residential school in relation to the deaths of the children? And who do we hold accountable for that? That's Kimberly Murray, Canada's first independent special interlocutor for unmarked graves and burial sites associated with former residential schools. We're very pleased to have her as our guest on Explore, a Canadian Geographic podcast. Welcome to all you explorers out there, armchair and in motion. I'm David McGuffin. So it was four degrees Celsius in my little corner of the woods this morning in West Quebec. Fall is making its presence felt. There's a kind of beautiful sadness to the arrival of fall, underlying sadness. It's definitely a season of reflection, And that's really become even more true in the last couple of years. For now, here in Canada on September 30th, we mark September 30th as the National Day of Truth and Reconciliation. It's a day when we reflect on and remember those tens of thousands of Indigenous children, First Nations, Métis, Inuit, who were ripped away from their families and forced to go to residential school with the express purpose of really wiping out their culture, their languages. And we now know that there was horrendous abuses that went on for well over a century at these residential schools. Thousands upon thousands of children died there, often of abuse, disease, hunger. So we remember them on this September 30th, and we look to heal the wounds, the intergenerational trauma that's happened coming out of that. Our guest today, Kimberly Murray, for five years was the executive director of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And more recently, she led the search for unmarked graves at the Six Nations of Grand River, working to recover the missing children and unmarked burials at the Mohawk Institute, the oldest residential school in Canada. And now, as I mentioned, she is the special interlocutor for unmarked graves and burial sites right across Canada, a job that she took over in mid-June. And we're very lucky to have her here as our guest. Kimberly Murray, welcome to the Explore podcast. Thank you. Congratulations on your new position. It's quite an impressive title. It's a mouthful, but obviously it also covers a lot of important topics and ground. What does your job allow you to do and what are you hoping to achieve with this, which I know is a big question. I mean, first, I just want to go back to how you said it's an impressive (laughs) title. The problem with my title is most people don't know what it is. What, what it means, right? So, um, you know, the term interlocutor is mm-hmm. not a commonly known term, uh, especially among uh, First Nations, Inuit, Métis people. And that's the number one question I get yeah. is, what's an interlocutor? And, yeah. um, you know, some people have said is, uh, you know, is it an interloper? <laughs> yeah. uh, and it's, it's interesting. So, you know, when you look up at the definition of an interlocutor, it's someone that talks. And, you know, of course, I get that question too. Well, we need more than talk, right? Mm. We need action to address uh, the issues of the unmarked burials and the missing children. So, you know, the main role of, of my position is to have those conversations uh, and have dialogue with First Nations, Inuit, Métis people, survivors, 
and leadership around the important work of recovery of the children and how I can help facilitate to remove some of the barriers that they're facing. And so, you know, so it is a big it is a big role of talking and, but more importantly, listening, mm-hmm. uh, listening to communities, uh, listening to the challenges that they've been facing, not just in the last year since Tekemloops, but for decades in uh, trying to recover the children that went missing at Indian residential schools. You mentioned Kamloops, and that is just over a year ago now in Kawasis First Nation, obviously, as well. And there's, I know there's been a, a big effort now across the country to, to find these unmarked graves. I mean, where, where are we with that? Yeah, I, I mean, I think uh, first, first, uh, I think that to Kamloops, when they announced the recovery of the 215 potential burial uh, burials of children, it really sort of put the spotlight uh, on the concerns that survivors and communities have been raising for decades. Um, and it, I think it's really important for Canadians to understand that um, there have been recoveries prior to Kemloops of burials on former grounds of Indian residential schools mm-hmm. and uh, industrial schools. Uh, you know, there was a situation in uh, Dunlop, uh, Al- uh, sorry, Dunbo, Alberta, uh, where the remains of children came up when the river flooded uh, on mm-hmm. the grounds of the old residential school there, and those remains had to be repatriated and reburied. Um, there is example in Regina with the um, Red Red Deer Industrial School. There's a whole cemetery of burials. Um, so, you know, survivors and communities have known this, uh, that, th- that there are children buried all over the country uh, that were forced to attend Indian residential schools and the Indian hospitals and other institutions. Um, so, but, you know, to Kamloops when it happened and it was announced, it really sort of grabbed the attention and the heart and uh, of uh, Canadians and the world uh, and really ignited a more fulsome response from Canada and the governments. And so when you say, where are we at? Um, you know, Canada made some announcements. Uh, one of the first announcements they made was to create the special interlocutor position mm-hmm. to assist communities. Um, and then they've also committed a number of other resources to the community, to communities to do the work. And so my understanding, there's approximately 80 communities right now have started to do the work of recovery that are being supported with funding from Canada. And everybody's at a different place in their recovery work. Some are just starting the research. Others are way along and have done the GPR and, um, you know, and uh, such as to Kamloops, and they're having those difficult conversations now about whether they repatriate the remains. And you mentioned, um, I mean, this this position that you're in now is uh, it, it was an appointment by the Department of Justice, and you're an it's an independent position, independent role, um, but it is you know within the Department of Justice. And I guess the the question is justice. I mean, where where does justice come from? And I you know I had Connie Walker on the podcast a couple months ago, and we had a long conversation about the lack of justice, even post TRC, and and so what are you hoping on that front? Yeah, um, so uh, it's a really important question, you know, what does justice look like and what does it mean for survivors and communities that um, have missing children and unmarked burials uh, in their territories? Um, and, uh, you know, one of the one part of the justice is, you know, that we have no laws. 
right? We have no uh, laws to protect these grounds. We have no laws to uh, support communities in accessing the grounds that potentially are privately owned now. Um, so, you know, part of my job is to make recommendations to Canada on a new federal framework, uh, on, on a legal framework, on how we can protect, preserve, commemorate these grounds. But, you know, broader than that, what does justice mean? I mean, nobody's been charged with murder. Nobody's been charged with negligence of these children criminally charged. And so we, I, I've been hearing that in my first two months of my position in speaking to survivors and communities. They're asking that question. What about justice? How do we hold Canada to account? How do we hold the churches to account? Because they haven't uh, thus far really been held accountable. And, um, you know, part of the work that I'll be doing is really thinking about uh, what, what does that look like and how can we achieve justice? And, you know, people need to understand investigating genocide is very different than investigating a criminal code crime. And mm-hmm. I, early on in my thinking, we do not have the expertise right now to investigate genocide in our country. And so is there things we can learn internationally about how we uh, investigate the crime of genocide? Many people have said this is genocide. Justice Sinclair has said it's genocide. The former Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of Canada has called it genocide. So how do we investigate that? What are the patterns that we see from residential school to residential school in relation to the deaths of the children? And who do we hold accountable for that? Right. I mean, it seems at a fundamental level, this should be police investigations as they would carry out almost any investigation, no? I mean, if there's uh, dead bodies and questionable deaths. Well, this is, this is, I mean, this is what I mean by the police services don't have the expertise to do this investigation, and meaning no disrespect to the officers on the ground. But first of all, there's a question of trust. We know that the, the RCMP were heavily involved in the residential school system. They were the ones that apprehended the children and took them to the institutes. They were the ones that were hired to return the kids when they ran away from them. And they were the ones that did the failed investigations when parents came forward while they were operating, saying bad things are happening in the school. You know, we have a number of failed police investigations and failed prosecutions. And it's not just the RCMP, it's the Ontario Provincial Police, it's the, you know, the the, the Quebec Provincial Police, it's the former British Columbia Provincial Police. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we have our municipal police services. Um, many of them were involved. You know, I have seen records where the Toronto Police Service were involved in taking kids back to the Mohawk Institute in Brantford, Ontario. Um, so, you know, the idea that we're going to ask a police service, an institution that was involved in um uh, protecting these institutions for so many decades, why would we trust them now mm-hmm. to do the proper work? But that aside, I also think that the way our criminal justice system works, we know report after report after report have said that it has failed Indigenous people. And so why would we turn to this justice system that has failed us? Day in and day out. And is there a better system? And the thing about my mandate, it talks about 
and directs me to look at Indigenous law and how we can incorporate Indigenous law into the solutions. And so what would it look like? You know, what would it look like if we had a special police task force, a special uh, police service made up of Mm -hmm. Indigenous officers trained, maybe bringing in an international expertise to assist? Is that Mm -hmm. in the realm of possibility for us? Would that have more trust from survivors and communities? I mean, you talk about genocide too. And internationally, Canada has a pretty robust track record of investigating. I'm thinking of Louise Arbor. I was in Darfur. There were Canadian police officers there investigating. I mean, it seems it's definitely within our abilities as a nation, you know, and how do you then get that to pivot to look at something possibly more difficult because it is within Canada, but how do you get that pivot to happen? Well, I mean, that's the thing, right? The, the expertise that you talk about internationally, um, we, we've never investigated ourselves, uh, for genocide. Uh, and so, you know, what would that look like? What needs mm-hmm. to change? We can keep having conversations with people. I think that there's this um, denial still mm-hmm. among many Canadians within government, outside of government about, well, these kids just all died of, of, of disease, yeah. right. right? Like we all were dying of disease at the, during the times and this mm-hmm. is no different. But if you were to read... Uh, and I encourage everybody to read volume four of the Truth and Reconciliation Report, which is right. specific to missing children. When you read that and you see the rate of death was exceedingly higher for Indigenous children in residential schools than anywhere else in the mm-hmm. country. We forced these children to be in these institutes and then we underfunded them yeah. uh, and created the scenario where high disease was prevalent, uh, which caused them to die. We also didn't take them to get proper medical care. We also didn't have doctors and physicians and nurses inside those institutions to care for them. And then when we did send them to hospitals, we sent them to underfunded Indian hospitals, which were just as bad as the Indian residential schools. So, you know, there's there's a lot more uh, yeah. that was happening. And there's some testimony, too, that the Truth and Reconciliation Commission gathered from survivors where they, they speak about seeing murders they see about people being beat to death and so that's a very important question for communities when it comes to exhumation there are those questions how did these children die was it disease or were they was there wrongdoing in the nature of uh, murder um, and when when you hear the testimony you hear the the stories that came that have come forward from the 7,000 survivors that testified you know that's that's a big question that communities still have I mean, the one thing that always struck me is when you look at the plans and designs for residential schools, they all, they all mostly included graveyards, but didn't include playgrounds. You know, what does that tell you? And I mean, I certainly never went to an elementary school with a graveyard in it. There, is a, there was a knowledge from the get-go that this was going to be an issue, it seems like. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and then pair that with the policies of the government at the time where they right out refuse to uh, pay to return children home. Um, So we know that children are buried somewhere and not in their home communities, uh, that they, because Canada refused to pay for the transportation of the remains back 
to where they came from. Right. Um, you know, and some of these, you, you talk about the, the, the blueprints or the plans for the residential schools. You know, some of them had rifle ranges. You know, like the Mohawk Institute down in Brantford had a rifle range, had two rifle ranges. What's, what school has a rifle range? And, you know, there are stories from the survivors that were handed down from, you know, generation to generation of the, the kids being at that school, that there are burials at the rifle range, that there was a time when kids were lined up and shot, you know, and, and, you know, whether, whether those are you know, those rumors, that's, that's what ha- we have to quell those rumors, right? We mm-hmm. have to confirm or, or get the evidence to put a stop to them. Because right. we'll continue to have this conversation for generations if we don't do the work today. You know, it'll be my grandchildren will be having those same conversations if we don't do the work today. No, exactly. And you mentioned the Mohawk Institute. And just prior to this, you were, you were involved in searching for graves and doing underground radar sort of searches and i'm just wondering what what came of that and what what that experience is how that has prepared you for this i'll I'll leave it to the survivor secretary to update uh, Mm. you on where things are at with their search but they were the survivors started the ground penetrating radar search they uh, purchased three uh, machines. There's over 600 acres of land to search. Mm-hmm. They have multiple teams that have been trained. And what's quite unique uh, about that situation down at the Mohawk Institute is that Six Nations has been training their own people to operate the machines. So they're not relying on outside companies to come mm-hmm. in. You know, so it's really community-led and involved. Uh, and so those searches continue to happen. Um, there's a massive, uh, and this is I'm learning very quickly in my role, and I kind of got a, you know, I, I, I got, I, I learned about it working at the at the Survivor Secretariat and the Mohawk Institute, is there's this, this massive backlog we're having right now in analyzing data. There's um, just so few people that have the expertise to analyze the data. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a lot easier to collect it uh, once you know how to operate the machine and what to set your antenna at and in relation to the different types of soil on, on the property. But then what? Once You have to process that data and then it has to be line by line reviewed by experts that know how to look for burials. There are a lot of companies out there that use GPR to find pipes and cement blocks under the ground where old foundations, they have great expertise in finding those because they scream at you when you look at the data. Uh, They're really impossible to miss uh, in many cases. They simply do not have the expertise to identify a grave shaft. You know, and the thing about ground penetrating radar is they're not picking, you don't see bodies right? You just see uh, disturbances in the earth and you have to know mm-hmm. what that could potentially look like for a burial, for a grave shaft. And um, there's probably, we can count on one hand in Canada, expertise in that area. And so there is a real need to uh, expand our expertise in, in that because there's just going to be a, a mass, I mean, there already is a backlog of people in the queue waiting to get their data analyzed. What makes this position you're in now different than what the TRC did several years ago? Oh, boy, I've never been asked that question. <laughs> uh, what makes it different? Um, I, It's different in that it's a focused truth 
gathering in the sense of it is very focused on the missing children and unmarked burials. You know, originally, uh, missing children and unmarked burial question was not part of the Truth and Reconciliations Commission mandate. Uh, there was a whole committee that was operating uh, when the TRC uh, was established, that was answering those questions, who died, where they died, how they died, and where they're buried. Uh, and that somehow merged and got transferred over to us at the TRC very late in our mandate. Uh, and we had asked Canada for additional resources to do the work because we knew it was such a big uh, big question and it was going to require uh, on-the-ground going to those sites of the 140, 41 residential schools to see if there's potential burials. That funding was denied by Canada. And so we did what we could as a commission to start the conversation, start answering those questions that survivors had had asked and wanted answered. And so that's where you see the uh, registr- the Registry of Children's Names That Died, uh, which is on the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation's website. Um, there's 3,200 names. Those are all deaths where there's documents that, that identify that they died. And um, I always like to remind people, the records that the TRC had and worked with only came from Canada and the church entities that were part of the settlement agreement and only came from the church entities that complied with the settlement agreement. And there's lots of problems uh, with a number of the entities not complying. Um, So when it comes to death and death investigations, a lot of the type of records that uh, could uh, connect uh, information to a child and a death of a child are in the hands of provincial governments. Mm-hmm. Uh, are in the hands of municipal governments uh, that, you know, issued permits for burials, that issued death certificates. And so those names, 3,200, were the names that the TRC were able to identify through the records it had received under the settlement agreement and that we were able to get through. And the document collection processes continued after the TRC, mm-hmm. uh, and much more work needs to be done in that regard. So so just uh, you had asked me that question about the difference. I, I, I do see my role as a continuation of the work that the TRC started, uh, calls to action 71 through 76, which are specifically address missing children and unmarked barrels, called on institutions to continue the work, to look for the records, to provide the records to the National Center, to work with communities on finding the burials, and to work with communities on uh, if they decide on repatriation of remains. Um, and so nothing happened. You know, the TRC ended in 2015. Uh, here we are, 2022. Very little work was done on those calls to action in, in the, the seven years. And so, uh, you know, it, it's like I'm picking up where I left off, I guess, uh, in 2015 with um, more people also standing with us to get the work done now, now more than before. Yeah, I spent a lot of time reporting from Africa and like a lot of people, I followed the TRC in South Africa and what they were able to do and was lucky to meet Desmond Tutu at one point. But what would, always struck me about that was they had they had teeth to 
prosecute. They had teeth to give immunity to people who did give testimony. They had a whole bunch of things. And it sounds like, I mean, what you're talking about, maybe getting some sort of special commission to look into genocide or something, is, is that really at the root of what you want? Like, we, we need something with teeth to actually dig into this at this point? I mean, it, it's a, it's interesting. Um, you know, the TRC was always compared to South Africa's TRC, mm-hmm. and um, you know, there are the, a number of differences. Um, and the main one being that in Canada, it's a settlement agreement, right? It was a negotiated settlement agreement, and so uh, what the commissioners uh, could and could not do was uh, an agreement that all the parties came to. And so that teeth uh, that uh, they had in South Africa, the commissioners did not have in Canada. Um, And it really was, uh, under the settlement agreement, the TRC really was, uh, the purpose was so that survivors' uh, uh, experiences could be shared with Canadians to educate them. Because all the other components of the settlement agreement were private and behind closed doors. And so there was no mechanism for people uh, like you and others to hear what happened. Um, and so there wasn't that ability to summons records, to summons people to testify. There was no immunity to those that would. And so what we ended up seeing very few people that worked in the residential schools came forward to speak to the TRC. Um, we did do a project where we worked with the churches to uh, speak to former employees, uh, and they wouldn't give us their names. They wouldn't give us any information to contact them directly. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, The churches all decided that uh, they would write a letter on our behalf of the TRC saying, will you come speak to someone at the TRC about your experience? Uh, and inevitably, everyone that ca- that did come forward, the very small few that came forward, all said the same thing. Uh, I didn't know this was happening. If I had known, I would have stopped it. Yeah. Um, which doesn't match up when we look at the testimony of the survivors when we look at the records uh, of where that person worked uh, and, and, you know, maybe you didn't know, but it clearly was happening right under your nose. I've forgotten your question now. (laughs) No, just comparing and just eventually getting to a point where there is a, there is a a body in Canada that has teeth to actually bring justice ultimately. Yes. Yes. Um, And, you are aware that, you know, there is a call for a special prosecutor. Um, and so, you know, who would that, pre- when I say who, I don't mean the individual, but what would be the entity that would be the special prosecutor? Uh, who has the power to lay charges? Mm-hmm. Obviously, it's police services in Canada. There is a complaint that's been filed with the International Criminal Court, mm-hmm. uh, which doesn't look from what I'm seeing, very promising to happen because of the way the court works. I am planning on speaking with individuals uh, that have worked at the International Criminal Court to sort of get a better understanding of the court process and what needs to happen. So those are some of the questions that we're exploring as the Office of the Interlocutor to write about. But it's it's definitely a question that survivors are asking. Will there be criminal charges? Yeah. I just want to touch on the Pope's visit. Pope Francis was obviously just here, and a big part of that was 
Reconciliation, and there were certainly mixed reviews on how that turned out. I'm just wondering what you thought about a strip. And I, the other thing I'm really interested too, and, and does this open up rec- access to Catholic church records anymore post that visit? Um, I guess that's a, we'll see. <laughs> yeah. uh, but um, just, you know, when the, uh, first of all, you know, the Pope's visit is personal, right, to individual mm-hmm. survivors. Um, uh I've heard from survivors that were in attendance that have said it was very meaningful to them, mm-hmm. that they really appreciated it and it was meaningful to them. And then, of course, we've heard from survivors that said, I want to, you know, I don't need any more uh, words of regret. Um, I need action. And the Truth and Reconciliation Commission has a whole chapter on apologies that I encourage people to read in the mm-hmm. Reconciliation volume. And it actually explores and looks at all the different apologies that have been made around the world to Indigenous people and who they came from, what the words delivered, and really looked at, you know, what is a meaningful apology? What, what could it look like? And putting aside, you know, that it's it's meaningful to the individual, whatever's meaning, whatever has meaning to them. But overall, you know, there has to be some action attached to it, right? Mm-hmm. And, and when we look at Canada's apology that they, that um, Prime Minister Harper issued, there was no action attached to it. None. There is none like, this is what we're going to do and we're going to do it in the next five years or the next 10 yeah. years. There's, there were no uh, goalposts <laughs> set for them to achieve the same thing with the Pope's apology, right? There is, there is no, okay, what are you going to do next from the apology? And so maybe, you know, the academic thinker in me (laughs) is like, well, one, I was like, did your staff not read the TRC chapter on apologies and what we meant when, when the commissioner said the Pope should issue an apology. And so that was missing. Will it get us more records? I don't know. You know, we had the same issue with the Anglican, the Anglican Church when the Archbishop of Canterbury visited Canada. You know, the Anglican Church in Canada said that they provided all their records to the TRC. We've since learned it wasn't accurate. There Mm -hmm. were actually records that were not provided. We know that there's records in the New England Company uh, in London, and we know that the Church of England holds records. And so there was a call on the primate of the Anglican Church and the Archbishop to get those records into, back to Canada for survivors doing recovery work in the Anglican schools. Um, and so we, we wait, right? We wait. And that's part of my job and, and our office is to make those inquiries of those bodies and those entities and to stand with the leadership in Canada to make sure that those records are, are delivered to the rightful, you know, in, in, in the right hands. This is actually a really important conversation that we're having we're having as a community is indigenous data sovereignty. And what does that mean and what does it look like and how who gets to hold these records and provide access to these records because we have all these institutions and people and churches and governments writing about our people. Uh, and then hiding the records from us and not allowing us to see them, collect them, correct them uh, when they're they're not accurate. And so Indigenous data sovereignty is uh, going to be a big part of the final report that I'm required to issue in two years. 
So, I mean, obviously to collect all the information you're going to be collecting, you're going to be visiting a lot of communities over the next two years. Is that part, part of the plan? Yeah. Uh, so uh, we're hoping to hold a no- number of gatherings over the next two years. And the first one's in Edmonton, September 12th to 14th. Okay. Um, and uh, some of the gatherings that we're planning are specific to topics. Mm-hmm that we want to cover. Uh, We'll be holding one in uh, January in Vancouver on uh, access to privacy, uh, access to records and privacy legislation uh, and the issue of Indigenous data sovereignty because uh, we're we're hearing so much from communities that they can't get the records. They can't get at LA Library and Archives Canada. They can't get access to the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation records. They can't get the church records. Um, and those records are vitally important to identifying, first, every child that went to the residential school. We don't have that right now. We don't know every child that was forced to attend the school. And so how are we going to identify who those children are if we don't even know they were there? Um, mm-hmm. So communities need to sort of create those names of kids that were taken to the institutes. And so, and then we're hoping to hold a gathering on Indigenous law to bring the elders and knowledge keepers together to talk about what are Indigenous laws in relation to burials and commemoration and preserving grounds uh, Mm -hmm. where children are buried. What would Um, an example of that be, just for people who don't know much about Indigenous law? Well, uh, every, every, I mean, we're multiple nations, right? Yeah, of course, Um, And every nation has its own laws and protocols around burial rights. Mm -hmm. Uh, Every community is going to have a different thought on whether we should disturb these burials. Mm -hmm. Uh, Should excavation happen? Uh, What does repatriation mean? Uh, You know, there are ways to repatriate without actually repatriating bones, right? We can repatriate, you know, the, the, the ceremonies. I mean, this is, I think, what's most painful to communities is that these little ones were buried without the proper ceremonies for their spirits, according to their cultural practices. And so for some, it's we need to find where they are uh, and do those ceremonies at that location. And then for others, it's like, no, we have to return their, them home to their to mother earth where they of their territory you know i i often when i'm speaking to people talk about what some elders have said that you know ceremonies have been happening on some of these grounds for decades since they closed Mm. that the schools closed uh but yet something more needs to be done because the children are still speaking to us their spirits are still there. People can feel them. There are still things that the children are doing to be noticed. Uh, many have said what happened in Tekemloops is the children speaking up, that yeah. you need to do more. That So now we have some of the knowledge keepers saying, oh, maybe these ceremonies, there's more. There's more that we need to do. What is it that we need to do? And so bringing people together to have that conversation. Um, and because kids were brought from all over to one location, right? Like I think into Kamloops, it's over 50 communities had their children taken to the Kamloops Indian Residential School. Mohawk Institute, it's over 30. And so you have Haudenosaunee and Nishnabe and, you know, Métis and Inuit kids all 
potentially buried on these grounds. What does that mean? They all have their own customs and uh, indigenous protocols in relation to burials and they might conflict, right? They might conflict with each other. Mm -hmm. Um, And so when that happens, what's the solution? And I know that indigenous law has mechanisms to resolve the conflict in our own ways. We had conflict long before settlers came here right. and we had ways to resolve those conflicts. And so what are the what are the protocols we need to follow when the indigenous customs um, aren't similar, aren't the same? And and you know how how do how do we address that? Um, so that will be that gathering which will be a really important conversation for communities and you know, they're having those conversations now internally and with those, the communities that have the children that were taken to the sites that um, they're responsible for. I just wanted to ask about your own experience. And we talk a lot about intergenerational damage when we talk about residential schools. And I'm wondering what your own family experience was and to what extent that has sort of led you to where you are today. Um, well, so I, I'm Mohawk and I'm a member of Ghana which is a uh, Mohawk community um, uh, two, Lake of Two Mountains and mm-hmm. outside Montreal. And, uh, unfortunately, I'm common, mostly known as Oka. Um, mm-hmm. And um, my grandfather uh, was actually taken by the Jesuits. He wasn't taken to an Indian residential school, but he was taken to an orphanage. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, very similar experience in that regard with abuses. Um, and... Um, my partner, who's now deceased, his father is a residential school survivor from Shingwak, speaks of his experience running away. It's actually quite a story, but it's his story to share. Yeah, so I can remember my first time at the Truth and Reconciliation Commission when I was hired as the executive director. The first time a church official walked in the room in their robes, wearing the black robes, full all the way down to the ground with the big cross in front and just this feeling of I don't even know how to describe it just this feeling of shock fear kind of a (gasps) sickness in my stomach and it was coming from what I knew about what happened to my grandfather Um, but you know I think over the five years of working with the TRC I learned to get beyond the rope (laughs) Uh, Mm -hmm. and actually have the conversations with the individuals wearing them. And so, but it was, it, it took me back. And I can remember being at one of our gatherings at the TRC where there were, you know, a whole group of men that walked in, in their robes, walking around the room. And I just, it, it was scary actually seeing them. It, it, It actually scared me. And I can't imagine, right. What survivors feel when they see when they see that or a six-year-old right or a six-year-old right like the living survivors and children at the time yeah so does that fuel me uh yes it it obviously fuels me um and then my previous work um as a lawyer working at aboriginal legal service in toronto i represented many 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 survivors uh seeking compensation for the harms done to them and just you know their experiences and their voices are in my head 
I live with the the trust that they gave me in sharing that with me. So obviously I feel a deep obligation to them to try and get that justice for them. Mm-hmm. How do you protect yourself hearing all these stories? Oh, well, you know, you can't see this because it's a podcast, but my I carry my medicine. Yeah, <laughs> I carry my medicine. We have our ways. You know, we. it's really important when we go to the sites to make sure we don't carry those spirits home with us. And so there are ceremonies that we do for that. I've actually been told by elders in the past that I carry extra spirits and there's ceremonies for that. You know, in our own Haudenosaunee traditions, we also have condolence ceremonies um, that, that we do. And so it's just really important to stay grounded in who you are and um, just know that, uh, you know, I, I like to think we're on the right side of history <laughs> doing this work and, you know, we're doing it because it's the right thing to do. And I think most Canadians think it's the right thing to do. And uh, that's who I feel that I need to spend my time with are the Canadians that know it's the right thing to do and, and not worry as much about the deniers that are out there. Mm-hmm. I think with your work, both with the TRC and probably now it's with this as well. I mean, I think the, the numbers of people who understand what went wrong is, is definitely grown. And I think in the last decade, at least. Absolutely. And I, I was reflecting on that, actually, because... I got asked that question uh, last year, what's different? Because when the TRC was operating, you know, we talked about the missing kids. We talked about the 3,200 burial uh, uh, deaths that we had identified. And mm-hmm. at that time, there was lots of media attention. Uh, we did it twice in the five years, actually. I remember doing two rounds of <laughs> media around that. Um, and, you know, and, and I get asked that question, what's different now? And And I think that it's one thing for us to just report the numbers and to to say that we identified this many deaths. Um, I think that image of uh, the flags uh, on the ground really moves Canadians from their sort of head to their heart. Mm -hmm. And the commissioners always talked about that. How do we move Canadians from their head to their heart because we need that for reconciliation. And I think that that happens with Tekem Loops. Um, the other thing is, I like to think that um, the work of the TRC uh, at our seven national events when we did Education Day, we would bring thousands of children to our events uh, and teach them about Indian residential schools. And, you know, young kids that were, you know, in grade eight, nine, we would, we we have video of them, you know, where they say, it's the worst thing Canada ever did. Mm -hmm. Biggest human rights abuse Canada ever did. You know, Mm -hmm. they get it. And here we are. They're young adults now, right? There are, there are citizens that are in colleges and universities and entering leadership, um, and I like to think that they're far more well-informed uh, than uh, previous Canadians um, because we never taught about, we never taught this in school. No, you know, no, no. N- no one was taught this in school. No, absolutely not. I, I've kept you a long time, but I have one last question. It's going to shift gears a little bit here too. That's uh, when I ask all my guests and it's, um, can you describe your favorite place spot in Canada? Oh, <laughs> oh! Wow, uh, I've been all over Canada. 
Yeah. <laughs> It'd be like a happy place, a place you go to in your mind when you need to get away from everything you're doing. Yeah, no, my, uh, I mean, it's interesting that you asked that question because there's lots of places I love, uh, but um, I, I have a cabin on Georgina Island First Nation, which is uh, on Lake Simcoe. Uh, you can't get to it unless you get on the ferry or take a boat. Uh, and uh, it's a little cabin that my partner and I um, purchased many years ago, uh, I guess 24 years ago. Um, and unfortunately, he did drown in that lake. But it mm. is still our happy place uh, yeah. to go there. Yeah. I mean, describe what, can you describe what the, is it pine forest or what's the, how does it look? How, how does it look? Well, yeah. There's no neighbors. <laughs> it's a good starting point. <laughs> I have no neighbors. Uh, it's uh, kind of an A-frame uh, cabin. Uh, lots of uh, ground uh, for the kids to run around in. I mean, they're adults now, so hopefully one day my grandchildren will be running around those lands. Very, you know, it's interesting. We chose that location and that that cabin because the water um, is shallow. Uh, where you walk out to. So it was good for the kids when they were growing up. You didn't have to worry about deep waters. Um, and it's just beautiful sunrises and sunsets. And, um, uh, you know, if only I could keep the jet skis away. <laughs> yeah, that's the, I think that's, yeah. I think a lot of people are with you on that one. <laughs> next, the next mission. But definitely, uh, I'd rather listen to the frogs and the crickets uh, falling asleep uh, than uh, the traffic outside my house in Toronto. <laughs> yeah, nice. Well, it's nice. And it's wonderful that you still have those feelings, you know, and I'm sorry for your loss there, but it's oh. wonderful that those feelings are still there. Oh, yeah. Well, Kimberly Murray, thank you so much for coming on the Explore podcast. This has been a real pleasure. May not be the word I'm looking for, but it's it's. I've learned a lot, and I really appreciate you coming on. Oh, anytime, David. It was really nice talking with you. Thank you. And thanks to all of you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and this podcast, can you do us a big favor and give us a really glowing review and a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen? I know that sounds like a bold ask, but the way the algorithm works in podcasting, it's the single best way to ensure these interviews reach as wide an audience as possible. So thank you very much. And be sure to subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. We'll be back again in two weeks. Until then, when we'll explore again, I'm David McGuffin. I think right now we're enjoying very much looking back at the Earth, and it's just a, a fantastic experience, and I just can't wait to get back and start telling people. We have Simpson about June 10th with the Fur Brigade, consisting of a number of York boats, each manned by 10 voyageurs. For us, Inuit, it means that Inuit oral history is very strong. And we flew all over every inch of the country that could be. We were hoping that he would fire at us. Oh, I guess 160.